For this episode of Metaphors Be With You, we'll be discussing the only movie that has ever caused me to wait overnight in line for tickets. Hi, I'm Rob Hired of Chipperish Media, and this is a podcast about symbolism and allegory in Star Wars, the movies, the TV shows, the books, and everything else. Except during season three, when instead I'm going to go through each movie to find the metaphors hidden in each one. I feel like I need to talk about the cultural impact of The Phantom Menace and the backlash to it, but to be honest, the rest of the internet has already done that, especially this year, the 20th anniversary of its release, so I'm going to skip it. I'm also not really going to talk about the film's quality and depth for the same reason. On this latest rewatch, I was struck by how ludicrously ambitious a film it is. It's not completely successful, but there is a lot going on here. The movie has to establish a whole new status quo, including the corruption of the Republic, which is intertwined with the crumbling of the Jedi. We also find out about things like the Trade Federation and the Senate, and establish the Sith, and this is all tangential to the putative plot, the conflict over Naboo. Finally, Lucas goes out of his way to state a theme here, the symbiont circle, so let's watch out for that as we break the rest down. We'll start with the Republic, because that's where the movie starts. The opening crawl makes a point of keeping things mostly simple. There's a greedy Trade Federation with deadly warships, and the Jedi are guardians of peace and justice. The problem is the rest of it. We're arguing about taxation, and the Republic is apparently too busy arguing to actually help. It's also telling, once the crawl is over, that this is the first Star Wars movie there had ever been that didn't start on an Imperial Star Destroyer. Instead, it focuses on a Republic transport, and the Republic isn't as different from the Empire as we would all like it to be. It's noteworthy that this ship is red, the traditional Star Wars color of evil, even though the passengers are Jedi. A through-line in the movie is that the Republic, frankly, doesn't do much, and this is visible in big ways and small. While Naboo is a member, all of its nearest neighbors are either controlled by the Trade Federation or the Huts, which is why Amidala has to escape to Tatooine. There aren't any Republic outposts or bases or any kind of infrastructure here, no equivalent to the highway rest stop. What's more, the Trade Federation, a corporation, apparently, has a standing military and the Republic apparently doesn't. It makes it hard to see why a planet would want to be part of the Republic. On Tatooine, we find out that the Republic currency is called Dataris, a word seemingly derived from data. It is information-based currency, maybe analogous to Bitcoin, or maybe just paper money and water doesn't want it. He wants something, and I quote, more real. Note that in A New Hope and Last Jedi, we see scoundrels getting paid with big boxes of stuff. Precious metals, I guess? This is presumably the sort of thing that Watto is looking for. We also find out that despite Republic laws on the books, slavery is alive and well in Tatooine. Since the planet isn't a member, that doesn't seem surprising, but Padme is shocked by it anyway. Shmi Skywalker tells us, point blank, the Republic doesn't exist out here. Interestingly, this means that the Empire must take up a substantial expansionary campaign before A New Hope, since Tatooine is obviously an Imperial world by then, with plenty of Imperial troops and informants on the ground. When we get to Coruscant, we hear some more about how the Republic works, or in many cases doesn't. We find out that the Senate, in addition to having representatives from various planets, also has a delegation from the Trade Federation. This is roughly analogous to the U.S. Senate including members from Coca-Cola or Microsoft. Given the lax state of campaign finance laws, you can certainly make the argument that we do, but this is out in the open in a way that U.S. government has never been. We save our direct corporate representation for the presidency. Senator Palpatine tells us that Chancellor Valorum is basically a figurehead right now because he is mired by baseless accusations of corruption. I'm going to take a wild stab that Palpatine knows for absolute certain that these accusations are false because he probably made them, or at least caused them to be made. In his Darth Sidious guise, Palpatine tells the Trade Federation that he will see that things in the Senate stay as they are. This is the evil of apathy and bureaucracy the evil of maintaining the status quo because it's easier. It is also the evil of leaning on thoughts and prayers instead of action. You'll note that when Palpatine points out the much maligned bureaucrats, who are supposedly responsible for keeping the Senate from doing anything, one of the two beings we see talking to Chancellor Valorum will continue to be at his side when he becomes Chancellor. Apathy and stagnation are Palpatine's allies here. 
So as the Republic collapses into its own satisfaction with the status quo, the Jedi Order is busy doing something similar. We hear almost immediately that Qui-Gon Jinn and Yoda disagree about a philosophical point. Master Yoda says I should be mindful of the future, but not at the expense of the moment. In and of itself, this doesn't seem like a problem, but we're going to see that Qui-Gon Jinn is A, being held at a distance by the Jedi Council because he won't toe the line, and B, right. Consider that Qui-Gon is the guy who says to the Council, the Sith are back and Anakin is the chosen one. The Council rejects both of these claims, but we, the audience, know both things are true immediately because that's how narrative works. Obi-Wan even tells Qui-Gon that he would be on the Council if he would just behave, but Qui-Gon knows that it's more important to speak the truth than follow the rules. Qui-Gon also tells us at various points that the trade dispute is trivial, that there's something behind the Trade Federation's apparently nonsensical plan, and that there's always a bigger fish. He's right about all of these, the last one not just literally, but also metaphorically, as a reference to the Sith being the bigger fish behind the Trade Federation. And let's talk about the Trade Federation a bit. We'll begin by noting, as we did back in Episode 4, that they're a racist caricature drawn from a pretty vile tradition of old, giant scare quotes, oriental tropes. And this is obvious from literally Newt Gunray's first line in his weird space Asian accent. Newt Gunray's name is also a signifier of a different sort. It's pretty clearly an amalgam of two politicians' names. Former Republican Speaker of the House Newt Gingrich, and former Republican President Ronald Reagan. Gingrich was the Speaker of the House from 1995 to 1999, so almost certainly during the time when Lucas would have been writing this movie. And his big policy achievements were cutting welfare and lowering taxes on capital gains. In other words, robbing from the poor to give to the rich. He was also a prime mover on the impeachment of Bill Clinton, so it's really not hard to see inspiration for the political plot of the film in 90s politics. Oh, and Ronald Reagan pushed hard for a space-based defense program nicknamed Star Wars, and Lucas held a bit of a grudge about that. The other thing that's immediately noticeable about the high-ups in the Trade Federation is these elaborate hat headdress things they wear, which I can't help but notice add a lot to their height, but don't give much substance. This acts as a visual reinforcement of the Federation's role as Paper Tiger. In the same vein, let's talk about battle droids. Visually, they're pretty insubstantial, and look like a stiff breeze would knock them right over. We also find out almost immediately that they have funny cartoon voices and say things like, Roger, Roger, as they obey orders. They are, in short, lousy soldiers. In the big battle with the Gungans, we'll see them be threatening by weight of numbers, and because they have tanks. But as the face of the new enemy, they fall pretty short of stormtroopers, and those guys are pretty famously not great at their jobs. So from the title of the film onward, Lucas is telling us that the Trade Federation isn't actually a big deal. And that's important because they'll be the most recognizable adversary during the coming Clone Wars, which are an elaborate hoax. It's an interesting problem, because you kind of have to sell them as a primary antagonist of the movie, but still undercut them as a phantom menace at a thematic level. I suspect that this is the reason for the Orientalist tropes, actually. It's another way to show them as people who should not be taken seriously. The deviousness and cowardice are an essential part of that package of stereotypes. Something else that jumped out at me on this viewing is the oddity that we immediately established that the extra-dangerous droids, the ones that can transform into wheels, are called destroyers by Obi-Wan and droidica by the Trade Federation. It's an unusual move to give a thing two different names right as you're introducing it, and the only narrative function I can think of for doing so is to other the Trade Federation even further, like the tropey foreigner who mostly speaks English but occasionally drops in a Kimosabi or Amigo or whatever. One way the Trade Federation does distinguish itself from the Imperial brand of villainy, at least as we've seen the Empire depicted in the films, is to establish internment camps for the Naboo. We never see these camps, but we see Newt Gunray order that Queen Amidala and her entourage be processed and take it to one of these camps. We'd later find out that the people of Naboo are suffering and dying, presumably in these camps. It's another point of tension in the movie. We both need the Trade Federation to be a credible threat for this story, and not actually that big a deal. So we'll deal with the internment camps in the most bloodless way imaginable, by never actually showing them or even talking about them all that much. The final bit of tension with respect to the Trade Federation's role in the story is the visual design of their machines. As mentioned, the battle droids are spindly and not really credible as soldiers, but they do look pretty mechanical and jagged. 
All of the vehicles, however, the tanks, the droid ground transports, the droid air transports, all the way up to the Lucra Hulk battleships, are rounded and filled with swooping, gentle curves. They're some of the most organic-looking machines in Star Wars, and I find that fascinating. Part of it, I think, is just the general look of the movie, which seems to be consciously avoiding the harsh angles of the Empire, since it doesn't exist yet. But the design of the big Trade Federation ships is also really similar to the insignia for the Rebel Alliance, and I just can't decide if I think that's a coincidence. On the other hand, we make a point of watching these elegantly curved droid transports crashing through a forest, knocking down trees and terrifying all the animals, so they're not that organic. It's yet another area where the movie is really very complicated and probably too ambitious for its own good. You may recall from the last episode that I'm confused by Han's unfulfilled prophecy of never seeing the Falcon again. This movie has two of those, sort of. Early on, when Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan are cutting their way through to the bridge on the Trade Federation ship, we hear Newt Gunray's sidekick say, We will not survive this. But he's alive and well at the end of the film, if under arrest. And right there in that scene, we hear Captain Panaka declare that they can kiss their trade franchise goodbye presumably because all of the crimes and sentient rights abuses they've been committing. But the Federation continues to exist and do enough business to be an important part of the Separatist Alliance through all three prequels. Presumably Palpatine helps them continue to exist by arguing that they're job creators or some such, further pointing up the failures of the Republic. Both prophecies do eventually come true, though, in Revenge of the Sith, when evil Anakin cuts down all the Separatist leaders, and the Empire presumably dissolves the Trade Federation. Again, these feel like missteps within the context of this movie, however, and are likely another casualty of its massive ambition. And speaking of that ambition, let's talk about symbiosis. Generally speaking, most creators don't just say their themes out loud. But for good or ill, George Lucas isn't most creators, and I think he really intended this theme because it runs throughout the movie. The first time it comes up, Obi-Wan is describing the Gungans and the Naboo as forming a symbiont circle, and what happens to one will affect the other. We also hear a bit later from Qui-Gon that we, presumably all sentient creatures, and the midi-chlorians are symbionts, and defines the term for Anakin as life forms living together for mutual advantage. So those are the markers Lucas laid down about symbiont circles. In addition to these examples, we have the Sith and the Trade Federation, and finally we have the Republic and the Jedi. Now let's look at each pairing through the two lenses that Lucas provided. The Gungans and Naboo live together on the same planet, but at first are not really together in any normal sense and seem to have no actual contact. But by the end of the movie, the Gungans provide an army big enough to challenge the Trade Federation's ground forces, and the Naboo provide the air support to knock out the droid control ship clearly a mutual benefit situation. As for what happens to one affecting the other, I'm a little less sure of that, since geography is the only reason that the Gungans are affected by the invasion, and the Naboo are effectively a buffer for the Gungans, delaying the Federation's attempt to wipe them out. The Midichlorians and their hosts are a bit easier to justify on these two criteria. The Midichlorian presumably derives sustenance and or safety from living in ourselves, and we get knowledge of the Force and occasionally telekinesis and clairvoyance and stuff. And yeah, things that happen to one of us presumably affect the other since we're all living in the same body. Next, we have the Sith and the Trade Federation, who are benefiting each other with the leadership and reach, more on this later, of Darth Sidious, and the military forces of the Federation. Again, though, the what affects one affects both test is sketchier here. If something happened to the Trade Federation, Palpatine would presumably find another patsy, like one of the several groups we see with Count Dooku in the next movie. Finally, and I think this is the important one to Lucas, we have the Jedi and the Republic. For mutual advantage, the Jedi provide moral authority and peacekeeping to the Republic, who provide stability and peace to the Jedi so they don't have to spend all their time on said peacekeeping. And I think it's reasonable to think that the corruptive influences seeping into each of these organizations are exacerbating the problems with both. The Jedi's increasing arrogance makes them blind to what's happening to the Republic, and the Republic's corruption and complacence is about to force the Jedi to go to war, leaving them no time for the peaceful purposes of their order. So the symbiosis theme is a bit hit and miss for me, but succeeds where it most needs to, with the Jedi and the Republic. Alright, maybe it's time to address the actual purported plot of the film. Structurally, this overstuffed movie really wants to have three protagonists, Anakin, Padme, and Obi-Wan, hearkening back to the main trio from the original trilogy. 
In practice, all three of these characters are absent for long chunks of it as we ride around in various POVs, so none of them makes a really strong protagonist. But if you're looking for the overall protagonist of the prequel trilogy, the equivalent to Luke in the original movies, it's Obi-Wan. And Lucas announces this intent by having his first line be that famous Star Wars refrain, I have a bad feeling about this. That said, Obi-Wan is actually absent and or overshadowed by Qui-Gon for most of the film, so other than his defeating Darth Maul at the end, he doesn't really have much protagonism mojo to speak of. As the most obvious Luke analog, Anakin is probably the easiest to see as the protagonist. Like Luke, he comes much later into the movie than you would expect, and like Luke, he saves the day by blowing up a big space thing with a much smaller space thing. More interesting to me is Anakin's initial status as an enslaved person, and I genuinely respect Lucas for Anakin's response when Padme asks, You're a slave? He tells her, I'm a person, and my name is Anakin. It's a good reminder that even the well-meaning can trip and fall into the repulsive worldview that some people aren't people at all, but property. Of course, the fact that Anakin is a blonde-haired, blue-eyed, enslaved person is predictable but uncomfortable. Even more uncomfortable is that we spend a moment with Sebulba establishing that Anakin is safe from being physically attacked because of his enslaved status, since Sebulba would have to pay Anakin's owner for damages. The last thing we need is another plank in the Actually, Slavery Was Good platform which is a real position espoused by real people who generally get to vote in everything and fuck those people. And speaking of weird racial undertones, there's the moment when Jewish stereotype Watto tells Qui-Gon that Anakin is a credit to your race, which is a classic in the genre of things that are actually much more racist than the people saying them seem to think. The idea of races of people getting credits and, one assumes, debits, based on the scare quotes quality of their members is just hideously reductive. Putting this line in the mouth of a character who is himself based on a harmful stereotype is just the uncomfortable icing on the racist cake. I'm also interested in the minor conflict between Anakin and Qui-Gon regarding slavery. Anakin has dreams of being a Jedi and freeing all the slaves, so when an actual Jedi does show up, he understandably really wants that to be the reason. He even asks Qui-Gon, why else would you be here? Because he has a child's understanding of the immortal, all-powerful Jedi, and we were running from a superior foe in our busted-ass ship is just not a thing that would occur to him. We also know that Anakin is a big dreamer, since he wants to free all the slaves and visit every star, but that doesn't fit too well with his and Kitster's shared dream of finishing the race, of course. In Lucas's single-minded drive to raise the stakes in the pod race as high as humanly possible, perhaps because he personally has always been a big fan of racing and speed and wants to narratively justify this ten-minute diversion, I would argue he pushes it way the hell too far. Let's count it up. Anakin has never finished a race. He finished building this pod yesterday. Sebulba sabotages said pod. Anakin doesn't actually get moving right away at the start. He has mechanical trouble three separate times over the course of the race and has to pass the whole field of opponents again each time. It's nonsensical that he's never finished a race if any of these yahoos have ever done it, because the sum total of this collection of obstacles is that he's 20 times the pilot of anyone else racing. Star Wars is absolutely about regularish people doing astounding things, but this one leaves me cold. I think because professional racing provides too much structure and measurement to the proceedings. It's fine that Biggs knows that Luke is the best bush pilot in the Outer Rim, because that's all Biggs' subjective assessment of his friend, even though it's probably literally true. But Anakin has clearly been racing in a semi-professional capacity for a while, and while everyone acknowledges that he's good at it, no one thinks he's the best who ever lived at it, even though there should be race times and other objective measures of his skill. Another task this movie has to perform is foreshadow the eventual Anakin-Padme romance. This begins with the line, Are you an angel? which I enjoy on a meta-writing level. It seems to me that Lucas was looking for a childishly basic pickup line that the audience would understand as such, so he picked one, then retrofitted this nonsense about moons of Diego and deep space pilots. The other bit of, let's say, romantic foreshadowing is when the group has just left Tatooine, and Padme finds Anakin shivering by himself. He's just left his mother and is cold, so Padme swoops in and maternally brings him a blanket and talks about how much she cares about him, and it really reads to me like substitute mother, not future wife, and frankly, this seems like an argument for not introducing Anakin so young because, yeah. 
So the group arrives on Coruscant, and shortly after is a scene that feels really significant to me. The Jedi are splitting off from Amidala's retinue to talk to the Chancellor and the Jedi Council, and Anakin is at first visibly conflicted about who to follow. He obviously wants to hear about the magic Jedi stuff, but he's being herded along by the Queen's people. The situation is resolved when Qui-Gon gestures at him to stay with the Naboo. I'm not actually sure what to make of this scene, though. I guess it foreshadows Anakin's future conflict of his feelings about Padme versus his role in the Jedi, but he's pulling in the wrong direction in that case. To accurately reflect that personal crisis, he would need to be herded along by the Jedi while trying to escape to Padme. Alright, let's talk about the tall frog creature in the room. Jar Jar Binks is a lot of things, including a racist caricature and one of the most hated characters in pop culture. But let's focus on the less discussed elements, shall we? First, you don't need me to tell you this, but when he repeats 3PO's line, how rude, Lucas is placing Jar Jar in the same hapless comedy sidekick space. Unfortunately, while I find 3PO endlessly relatable and dear, Jar Jar is... not... I'm not sure if it's the dialect or what, but he leaves me cold, and I'm obviously not the only one. Also, while I'm not a big fan of Jar Jar's speech, I do absolutely adore that his version of the Star Wars term spanner, which is just British for wrench, is wrench. It's like the pretension filter that Lucas applied to standard American English for Star Wars speak gets exactly cancelled out by the goofball filter that he applies to Jar Jar. And my last Jar Jar specific point is that he is clearly naturally steeped in the Force. His ridiculous degree of luck can really only be explained by the Force, especially during the big battle scene. Remember that he single-handedly takes out a destroyer droid, which our Jedi heroes failed to do at the top of the film, because, and this is key, he doesn't know he can't. He has, not to put too fine a point on it, never learned all the stuff that Luke finds himself needing to unlearn under Yoda. We first meet Jar Jar because he has a life debt to Qui-Gon. This concept is a fairly common one in fiction, but the terminology is specifically familiar to Star Wars fans. Specifically, it's always been the explanation for why Chewbacca chooses to hang out with Han Solo rather than go do something more Wookiee-centric with his life. It also therefore suggests Jar Jar as a Chewie analog, in addition to being a 3PO analog. And finally, as I discussed in Episode 4, it puts him in that magical Negro space that Chewie has always occupied for Han. This way, there's a reason that he will ignore everything going on in his own life to follow this white guy around. But it's a pretty thin, tropey reason. Zooming out a bit from Jar Jar, there are some things to observe about the Gungans as well. Looking at Boss Nass and the other leaders of the Gungans, they don't look much like Jar Jar or Captain Tarpals, the other Gungan with a speaking role, which leads me to wonder if there's some sort of racially based caste system at play here. Also, when we go to the Gungan Sacred Place, it's filled with old statues of Gungans that look like Boss Nass's subspecies, which Wikipedia tells me is called the Ankura. Jar Jar is an Otola. The more you know. One thing I really dig about the Gungans is their army's wild marriage of high-tech and nature. Obviously, this reinforces the nature versus technology theme I talked about in episode 5, and I really enjoy the big shield generators mounted on the enormous dinosaur-looking critters, protecting an army with quite a lot of mounted cavalry and using versions of ancient Roman weapons to lob plasma energy balls. This is the kind of thing I come to Star Wars for. The last big thread of the movie I'm going to talk about is the reemergence of the Sith, starting with the Rule of Two. The Rule of Two is weird, y'all. For the uninitiated, this is the formal name for the principle Yoda states that there are always two Sith, no more, no less. For a sect with ambitions of galactic dominance, this kind of seems like juggling with your tongue. It may be possible, but there are definitely easier ways. So it makes for an interesting narrative problem, as two dudes will never seem all that scary, at least not at the kind of scale Star Wars works at. This is why you get things like Maul's trio of spooky little probe droids, as droids without obvious personality are an easy narrative magnifying glass to apply to basically any character. Similarly, the Trade Federation army is essentially doing the same thing for Darth Sidious. The Sith and their capabilities are kept pretty mysterious, but we can infer that Sidious has some kind of influence over the Senate. That is, if you weren't enough of a Star Wars nerd before this movie to know the Emperor's actual name. We also know that they have some kind of enhanced reach for tracking people, though this story beat is poorly explained. 
We hear from the Jedi a few times that if Amidala's people can just resist the urge to contact Naboo, the Trade Federation won't be able to establish a connection trace. This is about as much science as we ever get from Star Wars, and it seems perfectly adequate to me to establish the terms of the subplot. Newt Gunray tells us that the Queen's ship is too far out of range, and Sidious responds, Not for the Sith. Given the aforementioned fact that the Sith consists of two guys, I assumed this line was supposed to indicate that Sidious would be using some exotic force power to locate the Queen, and that would be completely fine. The Jedi aren't trying to hide from force users, they're worried about the Trade Federation. So later, we have back-to-back -back scenes of Obi-Wan warning the Naboo again not to reply to a message, and then Darth Maul telling Sidious that the connection trace was successful. What connection trace? We seem to have gone in a more science fiction-y direction here, implying that the Sith have access to technology that is not generally known, rather than take the obvious and frankly more thematically coherent idea that Sidious used the future vision we know he has to figure out where the Queen would be. Another head-scratcher for me concerning the Sith in this movie is a couple of references to Darth Maul. Obi-Wan asks Qui-Gon, what was it? And Qui-Gon says, I don't know, but it was well-trained in the Jedi arts. I'm completely mystified why Maul, I think alone among sentient aliens in Star Wars, is an it. And it's definitely not that our heroes are just unfamiliar with his species because there's another Zabrak on the Jedi Council in this movie. Finally, the great stealth move of this film's supposed happy ending is the parade scene at the end. The music the Gungan Band is playing is a major key arrangement of the Emperor's theme from Return of the Jedi, and the weird orb thing that Boss Nass and Queen Amidala hold up while shouting, PEACE! seems to be filled with blue lightning, another hallmark of the Emperor. Yes, the movie says, everyone here thinks this is a happy ending, but this is all going exactly how our real villain wants it. All right, let's talk about intertextual points. First, and most trivially, Jabba the Hutt clearly digs that dancing girl costume he put Leia in and has for decades, because we can see another humanoid woman wearing it at the race. Also at the pod race, we see Warwick Davis, the actor who played Wick at the Ewok and various other minor roles in the series. Here we see him unmasked as a character named Weasel, who also appears in Solo, a Star Wars story again played by Davis. Usually I restrict these intertextual points to movies only, but I also wanted to mention that Captain Panaka, Amidala's security chief, will eventually be shown in other media as the Imperial Governor of Naboo after the Empire's rise. I really like this detail, brought to life in Claudia Gray's book Leia, Princess of Alderaan, because it shows how personal loyalty, in this case to his former senator, can blind a basically good person to terrible things, like how his former senator is now a sorcerer or despot who engages in genocide on the regular. Time to talk about my favorite part, which is definitely the bit of the musical score that plays in the final lightsaber battle, Duel of the Fates. I've always found this piece stirring, and any time I hear it, I sit up straighter and must pay careful attention. Honorable mention to a moment during that lightsaber battle, when Darth Maul uses telekinesis in the most Sith way imaginable, pointing angrily at a bit of debris and then pointing angrily at where he wants it to go. The Sith are all about control, and this bit of Ray Park's performance really sells that for me. So those are my many thoughts about this overstuffed movie. I would love to hear yours. Hit me up on, on Twitter at rhyrit or on the Chipperish Discord room. If you're not a member of the Chipperish Discord, head to patreon.com slash chipperish and find out how you can support Chipperish Media for just a few bucks a month. Stay tuned after the music for an important PSA, and metaphors be with you. This is a public service announcement to all the writers in the audience. Your Highness and Your Majesty are not interchangeable terms. Highness refers to a prince or princess, and majesty to a king or queen. And it's fine if a character like Han Solo, who doesn't know or care about correct forms of address, calls Leia by the wrong title sometimes. But in The Phantom Menace, Palpatine calls Amidala Your Majesty, and everyone else calls her Your Highness, and Captain Panaka at least should know better, and ah! Thank you. This has been a public service announcement. <laughs>